My name is Mish Robinson. I have worked in the classical and choral world for 20 years. First as an outreach manager, creating and delivering performing arts projects to the community, and latterly as a freelance choral conductor. Coming from a non-musical background, educated at a local comp, and unable to read music until I was 18, I struggled in the classical music world. From the minute I got to music college, there were rules, a language, and people I didn't understand. I very much felt like an imposter and essentially have been trying to make sure that doesn't happen to others ever since. I want to use this podcast to discover the real person behind the instrument, hearing their voice as we open out the conversation with those who may be considered the mavericks of the classical music industry. Those who haven't taken a traditional route, whatever that really means. I want to uncover the wonderful things that are now igniting this music world. For me, music is about the people. They are the conduits of this art form. They are the ones that have the ability to use music to tell stories and to touch the soul. Music's superpower. In this podcast, I find out what people think and how people really feel about the classical music world. Michelle Phillips is a music psychologist working as a senior lecturer at the Royal Northern College of Music. She wears numerous interesting and diverse hats. Michelle took an unusual detour in her music career after university, but found her way back due to her curiosity to gain new knowledge. Michelle continues this work whilst empowering others to do the same. I had a fascinating chat with Michelle where her energy and positivity were infectious. I think you're going to enjoy this. We definitely put the classical music world to rights. So Michelle Phillips is joining me in the studio today. Michelle, thank you so much for coming to the studio. Thank you for the invitation. It's an absolute pleasure. I did have um, a little bit of a Google on you, as, uh, <laughs> as I do. Um, and uh, um, you do an incredible amount. How do you manage to fit everything in? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, I do love my job. I feel very lucky to be working in music, to be working in a conservatoire at the RNCM. I think... You know, if you love what you do and you're passionate and there's so much to love about music, isn't there? And working in the music industry um, makes it fun. It's fun to... I love to say yes to things. <laughs> I love to get involved in lots of different things, try different skills, learn different things, meet different people. Yeah, brilliant. OK, well, that sort of um, takes us nicely for me to ask you, um, how did you find music? How did you find your love of it? Yeah, great question. Um, I was very lucky that my parents were extremely supportive of me wanting to learn an instrument. Um, my dad had dabbled in guitar, still still is a good guitar player. Um, and they were extremely supportive when I came home from school and said, I've got this chance to learn the flute. Please, can I learn the flute? And um, what I remember is not finding it easy at all. I had a fantastic flute teacher. Um, I was at a school in Doncaster, um, a local state school, which was very supportive of music, as was the music service. Um, so I was very lucky. And I remember when I first started to learn to read notation, I remember my dad staying up all night and plugging in this piece of music I had to learn into our Sinclair Spectrum so that the computer would play it back to help me to learn it. And, wow. you know, I, when I think back, I was really lucky to have that support, um, both through school, through my parents. Um, and it was my thing. You yeah. know, it was what I got the buzz from. And as I went through school and thought about, you know, what, what do I want to do? 
I mean, the, the very obvious route for me was, oh, well, I want to study music. It's what I love. It's what makes me happy. It's where I feel very at home. Did you find your tribe in music? Is that where your friends were in school and outside of school? Yeah, mostly. Not, not exclusively, but um, I gained a lot of friends through orchestras and ensembles you know I'm still a big advocate of that idea that making music together helps us to learn about ourselves helps us to foster social relationships um, and I made a lot of friends outside of school by being parts of things like uh, the Doncaster Jazz Association which is a, again a you know, great ensemble in Doncaster, all free, um, and the music centre. So I think it, it also enables you to meet people and, and to learn things from them outside of your other environments when you're growing up. And, you know, those teenage years are so key, aren't they, in forming your identity. And if you can meet people and learn more about yourselves through things like music... That's a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it was a no-brainer to go on to further higher education to study music, is that right? Yeah, I think I'd always been keen on further study. I was always quite um, academic. I always enjoyed the study. I enjoyed learning new things. Um, so, yeah, when I started looking for universities, um, no, no one in my family had been to university, but they drove me around all the open days. And, and it was music, yeah, that I, that I was looking to study. And German, I studied music. Music and German joint honours. Okay. Where did the German come then? Where was that from? Do you know, I think the German was another one where I just found it a lot of fun. I found it a lot of fun learning it in school. Um, I had a lot of friends who in my classes who were a lot of fun. And I think the other thing that for me made a difference was I had the opportunity in my secondary schools. Um, I went to a school that just went up to GCSE and then I had to go to another school for A-levels. I had uh, two opportunities to do exchanges okay. with... Uh, school students from Germany they came and lived with us for a week and I went and lived with them and that was so eye-opening you know that idea that you can be exposed to an entirely different culture with different food and different ways of doing things um, I loved that idea that the world becomes more open when you start to study a language so for me that was a key part of what I wanted to, wanted to do yeah it's interesting isn't it because that's not as common these days and I think about it I mean we 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 went and we went and stayed in France for a week. You know, we did that. Yeah. But even even that is not commonplace now, isn't it? No. And that whole you, unless you get away from where you live through university or whatever, you don't see. Even though we're small because of obviously technology, we're a small world because of technology. We don't. Yeah. We don't get out there in in that sort of way as much anymore. Absolutely, and and it it was really formative for me in those teenage years to do that right. to go and live with a family. It was also quite scary. I remember yeah. being a bit nervous about that um, but in terms of what I learnt and, and, and it gives you that buzz then you think wow I can go and I can talk in another language in another country and that was really exciting for me and, and then the option to do the joint honours meant of course that I spent a year in Germany which was a fantastic oh, year so okay. yeah I do I would encourage any young people to take the chance if they can to go and spend some time in another country I think it's such an enriching thing to do yeah yeah um, so uh, where did you end up at university? I went to Nottingham um, and I do remember the open day there, which really sealed it for me because it's beautiful. And I went with a couple of friends who were also thinking of going there and they had a really nice joint honours programme. And when I saw the campus and met some of the staff there and saw the facilities, uh, that was it for me. That was that was my first choice and I, I really wasn't considering anywhere else. And um, music college was never an option for you at that point? Do you know, um, I'm going to tell you something I haven't told many people because it hasn't really come up, but... I do remember in one of my flute lessons when I was doing GCSE music saying to my wonderful flute teacher, Mrs. Eek, 
um, whose husband was a violin teacher, so that was a source of amusement, Mr. Eek. <laughs> uh, and I remember saying to her, I found out about these music conservatoires and I, and I showed her um, the prospectuses and, I, you know, I'd love to do that. And I remember her quite gently but, but very um, wisely saying, actually, I'm not sure that you would get in. I'm not sure you're of the right level in terms of playing to get in. And for me, I remember thinking, oh, you know, it was a bit of a knock. Yeah. But I thought, well, that's OK. You know, the academic side is, is where my strength is anyway. So I didn't really consider conservatoire. But part of the reason is I don't think I would have gotten in. I'm, I'm not the best performing musician. Do you really think that? Do you really think you, if you'd have put your mind to it? Because you strike me as somebody who, when they put their mind to something, they, they're pretty good at going, <laughs> going for it. So do you think that that's the case? Or do you think, it, do you think it's that actually, no, you enjoyed the academics, you, it didn't knock you so much that you thought, no, I'm going to prove you wrong? Or what impact did that really have? Oh, that's a great question. That's quite probing. This is this is uh, this is therapy. I've not not thought about this for a while. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think you're probably right. When I set my mind to something, I'm quite determined. Um, I quite like taking risks. I, I quite like going for it. Um, I don't know. I mean, possibly. I, I think as well. I. I'm not sure I was confident enough to give it a go. And I, I do have real admiration for the students I work with now at the RNCM because it's not an easy thing to do when you're a teenager, that, that audition at a music conservatoire. And for me, I did have a lot of performance nerves. I think I would have found that um, difficult. So I don't know if I was in the right place. Maybe if I'd have set my set my heart on it, I could have given it a go. But it's interesting because you said that your teacher said wisely. And yeah, I think you're right. I think it is. It's, it is a, um, a pressured environment. And without yeah. that real drive, it's not necessarily the right environment. Yeah, and I think I'm very aware of the fact that these young people that come in and study at music conservatoires are amazing. To have gotten in, to have got to that stage of their performing or composing lives and to be so good at it. And I'm very aware that part of my role is to help them to be the best they can be and to think back to my young self and think, well, what would I have needed? What would I have wanted if I had been in this environment? Yeah, absolutely. OK, so, so you went to Nottingham. Um, had a great time. I had a lovely time. It was, it was. I have so many special memories, and actually, I formed so many incredible relationships. And just recently, one of my best and most important mentors, Peter Wright, who was a, um, a music academic, and um, passed away. I, I just went to his memorial two weeks ago in Oxford, and um, that was really. I had some very special relationships with people I admired and really looked up to and thought, Do you know what, I would love to have the chance of a career being someone who just gets to be immersed in music every day, think about music, research music. So I had some really special times, special memories, um, formed some special relationships, met my husband. Ah. I should mention that. That was that was notable. <laughs> um, and I still have strong connections there, so I still go back and visit often. OK, so obviously you mentioned music research, which I know that is something uh, you're very involved in. So that it was then, it was at university that that sort of got ignited, that passion for research got ignited. Is that right? Definitely. Um, and it was it was mainly in my final year when I um, wrote a dissertation uh, as part of my music credits. And I remember thinking, is this possible that you can have a job where you find out new things that nobody else knows yet? And the buzz that I got from that was really exciting. And I remember Peter Wright saying to me, who was my dissertation supervisor, 
He said, do you know what, if you want to access the, those materials that we don't have here in Nottingham, what I can do is I can write you a letter and you can go to the British Library in London and you can access those books and, and articles there. And I remember thinking, wow. <laughs> and I went down to London and I got this reader pass and I got access to these materials to start thinking about new connections that maybe people hadn't made. And it was such a buzz. I, I was in. Oh, and, and I should just say, I'm guessing we were at a time where everything wasn't readily available on the internet. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think we're a similar age. Absolutely, absolutely. I was telling the students, um, was it last week? It was recently I was telling the students that when I was studying my undergraduate degree for our music modules, if there was listening work to do between classes, which there which there, there often was, we had to go to the library and borrow the cassette <laughs> from behind the desk and then take it to the nearby listening booth. And I think for the, think for the generation of students now, that blows their mind. I know. Well, I'm sitting here <laughs> nodding because that's exactly what I had to do. <laughs> Hours spent in front of a, you know, stereo unit in the library. Yes. <laughs> um, so can, what was your dissertation on? It was on music and maths. Oh. So it was very much the start of my research. It was on how music might or might not represent the golden section, um, which is a particular proportion. It's a really nice mathematical um, idea that people have claimed appears in music. So that was my first toe in the water into that area. And that very much spawned the seeds of what I then went on to do as, as a PhD. So tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, I had a break. I did a master's also at Nottingham, um, and which I thoroughly enjoyed. And then I thought, do you know what? I should try something different. Um, if I if I am serious about going going back into academia, I thought it'd be nice to pay a bit of my loan off, try something else different. Um, and so I trained as an accountant. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> I did treat that. <laughs> so it was a bit different. I I did the. Um, I went round the graduate recruiters to see what schemes they had on offer for graduates and I applied for quite a few. I got a couple of offers and I chose to work for KPMG. So I moved to Leeds uh, and I worked for KPMG there for two years and then I did two years in London as well, uh, which was enough time to get the accountancy qualification and to have some really nice experiences. I, I really enjoyed it and I have a lot, I owe a lot to those four years. And it was really, it worked out really nicely because I always had at the back of my mind, it's still there. That pull back towards music and research so, is still there. So that's my question. Was it always the plan? You knew that the accountancy was only temporary or were you trying it out and seeing what? Yeah, I did know it was only temporary, but I swayed during those four years. Um, I was reading books by people that I really admired. Um, I can't remember her name, but the lady who used to run the Royal Opera House, I was reading her book. Uh, and I was looking at people in the music industry who I really admired and I was thinking, do you know what? Financial skills are really helpful. If you're thinking of being in the music profession in any shape or form, it's always useful to know your way around around the finances, around a balance sheet and a profit yeah. and loss account. And so I always thought, well, this is useful. But also I had a lot of fun. I did have a lovely time, um, especially in London where you know I was in the financial heart of the city. There's a lot, I think, that I would criticise about it, but there's a lot that was a total joy. And it got to the end of the four years when I had the qualification, and that's when the conversations start about your journey through through a, a, a very big organisation like that, and whether you might be fast-tracked here or you might try that. And I thought, actually, this is the time to take a step back. And I had just started reading 
Daniel Levitin's book that had just come out, This Is Your Brain on Music, and I read about this incredible research, part of which was being done by Ian Cross. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I got a chance to work with him? And so that was the start for me of thinking about a PhD proposal. Right. And so you made the decision... You applied then for PhDs, is that right? I did, I did. I only applied to work with Ian. So I read about Ah. the Centre for Music and Science at the University of Cambridge and um, Ian, Professor Ian Cross, who who ran the centre. And I thought, that sounds just the right kind of thing because I was wanting to build on what I'd done for my dissertation on music and maths. But the angle I really wanted to take it down was, can you hear it? Can you hear maths in music? And at that point, um, I hadn't done a lot of um, reading around music psychology or music perception, but I was aware of some of Ian's work. So I thought, I'm going to put in one application and see how it goes. Wow, okay. So... um... So you really, it was a case of leaving it to fate almost? Kind of, yeah. If I hadn't have got in, I don't know whether I would have applied elsewhere. I, I did talk to people in that at that time. I spoke to colleagues from Nottingham, staff from Nottingham, who supported me to get their advice on whether I should look at other institutions or, or to look to work with other people. And um, I don't know if that application hadn't been successful, whether I would have applied elsewhere, but... Um, I was really was fortunate, yeah, yeah, that I didn't I didn't have to think about that. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting. I mean, you know, um, the whole point of this podcast is to find, uh, is to understand people's experiences. And I would hazard a guess that there's not many people who are working um, uh, so crucially in music that have gone away and done a job like an accountant <laughs> for four years. And I just, I just think that's really interesting because... I think as musicians in whatever bit of music you're in, we're always in such a rush. Yeah. But it, you know, and I've learned now at the grand old age of, of 43 um, that, oh, I just wish I hadn't been in such a rush all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, and I just, I think it's brilliant that um, you went away and kind of got um, a, a whole different outlook with a completely different industry. I'm very, very grateful for that, for that time. I mean, there were some, things that are so relevant to what I do now. For example, I I was an auditor with KPMG. I was working as an auditor while I trained. And one of the things that was my job was to audit Opera North when I was working in Leeds. So I got to spend two weeks there and go through their accounts and talk to the team there. You know, it was totally eye-opening and really enriching. And all of the... I spent a, some time on a secondment in tax and in forensics, which was really interesting. And I got to spend time at the Stock Exchange, you know, see a side of life that I'm really grateful I got to see that wasn't for me in the long run, but was really interesting to see. And one of the things I'm so, so glad to do now is I do a lot of the work with our students on tax and on finance and budgeting. And I'm really, really grateful that I have that expertise to share because I think it is necessary for music students to have that. Yeah, I read a quote uh, recently, but it's it's true about about if you are a freelance musician, you are an entrepreneur, and you are a business. Yeah, absolutely. You for tax purposes, you're classified the same as somebody who owns a local shop or a massive online web business, or you know you're the same. Yeah. I think the other thing that I took from that time, from those four years, was it made me appreciate my job now, because I think some of the things that were commonplace in that job, such as long hours, working away from home a lot, 
Um, it was extremely hierarchical. So you were beholden unto your manager and they were beholden unto the senior manager and partner. And that's the way the organisation works and it works well. But it makes me very much appreciate some of the some of the day-to-day parts of my own job now, which is a huge amount of autonomy. I get to decide what I do. I get to steer my own path largely and a, a lot of flexibility. And I think it, it just makes me appreciate that much more. I think I wouldn't have valued that as highly if I hadn't have spent some time outside of academia. Yeah. Well, actually, that brings us quite nicely on then. Um, I know we've skipped a huge amount of years and, and we'll perhaps uh, backtrack, but tell me, what do you do now, Michelle? What does your work life look like? So I'm a senior lecturer at the Royal Northern College of Music uh, here in Manchester. And I've been there for 11 years or 12 years, um, if you count uh, a year working as a part-time member of staff. So in the last year of my PhD, I was living in Cambridge and I spent one day a week getting up at half four in the morning. It was a Friday and I would drive to Milton Keynes and get the train to Manchester. And then I would teach. I would teach all day from nine to five, teach students at the RNCM. And I taught them mainly music theory, some music history. And then I go back down to Cambridge. And then just very fortuitously, just as I was coming to the end of my PhD, PhD, a job became available at the RNCM, um, which I was, again, you know, very fortunate, very grateful to get. And I've been there ever since. I did do some teaching at Leeds Conservatoire as well during my PhD, which again was was fantastic. So my research has developed while I've been there, as has my teaching. So I kind of have three hats at the RNCM, as do, as do most academics, I think. So I have a hat, which is my teaching. Um, and I largely teach music psychology now, which which is my research area. Um, I have another hat, which is my research uh, and all of the research I've done around various things. And I have another hat, which is um, a more kind of management hat. And actually that hat has just changed, just changed in September. So up until September, I was working on the programmes. I was helping to look after the programmes, which means the degrees. So I was deputy head of undergraduate programmes, which means basically designing modules, keeping the modules fresh, um, exam boards, looking at degree classifications. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, But now my job is head of enterprise. So I'm looking after things like the entrepreneurship training um, and this funny term that is now becoming commonplace in academia, which I'm not sure you've come across, which is knowledge exchange. Oh, yes. Okay. So I have come across that term, (laughs) but it is very new, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, yeah, as I said, very busy person. (laughs) Let's take those uh, those three things. So I first came across you as a music psychologist. That's yep. the term I first saw associated with you. So tell me about that. How did you become a music psychologist or what is a music psychologist? Yeah, for me, I think that's how I identify myself mainly as a music psychologist. Um, when I joined the Centre for Music and Science in Cambridge, that was becoming quite a, a commonplace term, music psychology, as a discipline. And people were starting to study it who had a background in music and who had a background in psychology and people who had a background in neuroscience. And it's basically a term that has come to mean a field of research that is learning about 
music and and us as humans. So it includes everything from how do we perceive music to what happens to our bodies when we play music, what happens in our brains when we hear music, what happens when we become ill and music might help. Can music help people with Parkinson's or dementia? So it includes everything in those kinds of areas. It brings together music and psychology, really. There are various other terms that get used, music and science, systematic musicology gets used sometimes. Um, But for me, it's the perfect home, bringing together arts and sciences to answer some of the questions that for me are some of the most important ones. It's, and it's new, it's a, I mean, I know it's been around for a while, but it's, I feel like music psychology, and maybe it's just because my interest has grown of late, um, <laughs> but I feel like music psychology is becoming very prominent in a way that it, probably in the last 10 years, is yeah. that, am I right? In that yes, you are that? right. You're absolutely right. I, I find that one of the most exciting things about doing research in this field, it is new. And I love seeing students' faces when I tell them that we don't know the answers. When I do a class on music and emotion and I start by saying, we don't know, we don't know. There's this great research out there that has taught us maybe this and maybe that, but the fundamental thing is we still don't know a lot of this. You know, it's a prime time to get involved and do this research. So, so much of the fundamental knowledge about why we have music, what it does to us, is still to be learned, and that's dead exciting. I think the other thing that's helping us now and why it's growing over the last 10 years is, yes, there's more interest in it. I think also there's more opportunity, partly because disciplines are starting to work together more. So I collaborate with a lot of neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, um, and partly because technology is giving us new opportunities. So you can measure things Mm -hmm. during the music listening experience that you couldn't measure before. So here's a question. How important then is music psychology to a music student um, as in what can music psychology tell us that will help a music student's journey to becoming a musician? Yeah, great question. It's one I think about a lot. I think the RNCM thinks about a lot. And we are always thinking about what is the right programme of study for, for today's musician. Yeah, I think what makes my research really satisfying for me and really fulfilling is that it it is relevant for them and uh, for the students. And when I explain things like, look, this is what we know about why people like live music. And they can take that away and think about how they can put that into their next gig or their next recital. And some of the knowledge that's coming out now from from work I'm doing and others is is some simple things like an audience likes a sense of interaction with a performer. And that can be done very simply by introducing your work. And some ensembles, some performers don't do that. And we now know that that's quite important. That's one of the things people enjoy in a live music experience. So I hope and I always intend to do research that does have that kind of impact and is useful. Um, And that makes it all the more satisfying if someone says, do you know what, I could take that and use it. It's a really important conversation because um, my own experiences 20 years ago going to music college, it's very important, I say how long ago it was. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's important because I know it's changed from when I was there. And and, uh, some of the guests that I um, have spoken to and I'm speaking to had a tough time at music college and, and it has impacted 
you know, their careers in various ways. Um, but what I'm aware of is that because of music psychology, because of the entrepreneurial side of, of music coming more to the fore, yeah. I think things have changed a lot and are being thought of very differently. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. That's always what we intend. There's a couple of things that I do with students that I think are, are, are focused on that exactly. Um, because I think it's it's not easy for that for that generation. They've got challenges that yeah we are we are at the same age. They've got challenges that I think our generation didn't have. Not least you know mental health crises and and the world as it is, which is sometimes not an easy place. And one of the things that I think higher education in general is changing um, towards is that idea of students as individuals. So uh, a, a higher education experience is, is not a sausage factory. It's not a conveyor belt. It's about meeting that incredible person where they are and helping them to carve their own path. And for some, that will be, you know, a glittering recital career around the world. And for some of them, it won't be. For some of them, it might be working in a hospital in with music therapists. For some of them, it might be teaching in a school. Some might go off and do something entirely different. Military musicians. There's so many different routes that people can and should take. And I think we have still have work to do, but we're getting a lot better as an industry at meeting people where they are and helping them carve out their own path. So I think it is changing. I think there are lots of other things that we can do to support young people. For example, I think there are many more opportunities, much more flexibility within what people do at music college nowadays. So many more, since I've been there, I've been there 11 years, there are many more modules that are options. So students can choose what they see as their thing. Yeah. So tell me more about the entrepreneurial side. What, what was the title that you used? Yeah, so my, my job at the moment as head of enterprise, enterprise, there's many debates to be had about the differences between the terms enterprise and entrepreneurship, but let's not go there. Okay. That's, a, that's, a, that's a whole can of worms. <laughs> um, but what, I mean, to me, what that means is training freelance musicians. And for me, it's as basic as that. It's how do we make sure that when they leave, they have the skills to be self-employed. Um, entrepreneurship can also relate to someone working within an organisation. There's this really cool term, intrapreneur, which uh -huh. means an employee and how they can be innovative. Uh -huh. um, but for me, it means helping students to generate new ideas, helping them to turn those ideas into something real helping them to go out into the world at the end of the four years and to use their passions, their interests, their skills to make the difference they want to make, to, to kind of chart their own journey. I think the other change that I've seen that I love and I, and I can't wait to see where it goes next is this idea that a music conservatoire degree either trains you to slot into a music industry that already exists or it trains you to make the new music industry of the future. And I think whereas in the past, perhaps conservatoires and music departments have done the former, trained people to slot into what exists, I think we're now much more focused on the latter. To train young people who are fired up, highly skilled, wound up and ready to go to make new things. When you just said that, I went all goosebumps <laughs> and I got a bit teary actually. And I'll tell you why, because um, when I went to music college, it, I didn't fit into the 
slot uh-huh. um, of the classical music industry as was. And I was really aware of that when I was at the RNCM. Right. And to the point that um, because I nearly got chucked out in my first year. Oh, and wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that sounds really stressful. It was very stressful. So I went away from performance and I, I went into arts admin and, and actually it was absolutely the right thing for me to do. However, I felt that I'd failed uh. because it wasn't going into that that particular way of, you know, a performer. Yeah. Um, and what I think I've spent my sort of career doing, I was obviously, I, I ended up doing the right thing and I, and I never regret going to music college one little bit yeah. because um, what it actually meant was that I spent, I've spent my career making it as accessible as possible yeah. for all sorts of different people in all sorts of different ways. Brilliant. And, but I think that when you said um, you're creating, um, you're helping to create students who forge what this, what the future of classical music looks like. Yeah. I mean, the student me, I would have lapped that up. Oh, I would really? have absolutely lapped because I had so many ideas, so many ways from my own background of how music could be more accessible to people but brilliant but at that time no one was listening no avenue yeah 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 i i think there are probably hundreds of thousands of of people who had that experience and i and i really hope that that's not the case anymore and Mm. that and that it won't ever be the case for example one of the things that we do is we run this uh, award, the Creative Innovators Award. And it's a chance for students, any students at the RNCM, to win up to £2,000 and some mentoring for any new idea. And one of our fantastic winners, Liv Hamblin, who's a singer, put forward a charity called Musicians Minds Together to create a charity to help young musicians with their mental health. And she won the award and it's just doing amazing things. She's now considering research around this area. And that's so exciting that that new idea was able to come to the fore and I think it's so important that we do that one of the things that we do with students is we talk about this concept of what gets called effectuation another cool term (laughs) and what that basically means Saras Saraswathi did the research on this and coined the term and what she says is it's meeting someone where they are Mm -hmm. so it's saying who are you what are your passions your beliefs your values What do you want to do with your life? Do you want to be a millionaire? Do you want to help people who haven't had access to music? Do you want to help people who are at the end of their life? And how can you do that? So it's not starting with what does the music industry look like and what can I make? It's Mm. starting with who you are. Mm. And I think the more we think like that, the more exciting the music industry will be because we'll create these young people who are just full of energy. I couldn't agree more. And, and that's it. I mean, I love talking to students and, and you know, people in their 20s because, you know, in, in your 20s, you should want to change the world. You should. <laughs> and you can. You can. I mean, I still want to. I've not lost that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but, and, and, and there is, there's a sort of... Um, a naivety which yeah. is is so key and I think is so important in looking at this I mean looking at all sorts of industries but but looking at this classical music industry and yeah. and how it becomes more relevant to more people absolutely absolutely and it's amazing how conscious those young people are of making a difference and I just 
utterly admire it. I see a real difference from my generation in their drive. You know, they some of them want, you know, a, a good pension, lots of holiday, a nice house, a big car, which absolutely go for it. But many more of them than in my generation want to change the world. They want to have a social impact. They want to make a difference. And it's really admirable. Mm-hmm. And I think if I can help in any way for them to be able to do that, you know, what more could you want in a job? It gives me such a buzz to think I can help make the world better by doing what I can to support them. And um, there is a really lovely kind of full circleness about it, isn't there? Because when you said when you went to university, you were inspired by the people that were there and researching and and, yeah. and doing amazing things and mentored you. Yeah. And, and I guess you've kind of, you're now doing that for students. Absolutely. And what I remember most about my the incredible staff who helped me, uh, including the incredible Elizabeth Bowen, one of my German lecturers, was the times when they said, go for it. I remember saying to her, do you know what? In my final year, I'd like to put on a full-scale production of the Threepney Opera by Kurt Weill, and I'm going to direct it and conduct it. And she said, go for it. You know, it was the craziest idea. But people who said, do it, you know, and I can help you in this way, I can help you in that way. Yeah, again, and, and I think that word naivety, it, it comes in again, doesn't it? You know, I, I think we can so often trip ourselves up if, yeah. we, if we think about all the, oh, well, it shouldn't be like that and it shouldn't be like this. Yeah. It's, it, it, if we have that sort of naivety and, and, and then go for it, then really exciting things can happen. Absolutely. And I think I love encouraging students to take risks, yeah. you know, risks that they feel comfortable with. But why not? You know, the university time, conservatoire time is a key opportunity to try stuff out. Doesn't matter if it fails. Try it out. Do some things that are really off the wall. So um, obviously you're situated in, in higher education. What do you what would you perhaps change about the industry as it is now? I mean, we've talked about how, I mean, actually, you've, you've said about how you're empowering students to go ahead and change it and mould it, um, it for the, in the right way for them. But what would be helpful? I think this is definitely changing, but there still needs to be greater awareness of representing the world as it is. Um, there still needs to be role models that look like everybody in the world um, so that people can see themselves in successful musicians. I still think there needs to be a breaking down of some of the more traditional forms of doing things, Um, that idea of master pupil Mm. that can actually not work for everyone, works for some people, but sometimes can impact on people's mental health. There still needs to be greater acceptance of um, people as individuals. I think that idea of um, musicians as an asset, as a mass group who perform and don't have individual ideas is old-fashioned. So that idea of inviting people to contribute to the industry in whatever form as themselves and to bring their ideas, for me, would help us to make massive steps forward. I also think that we we need to open out how we present music to different publics, how we get it out there to people who might not have had chance to hear it, where we play music, the kinds of music we play. I'm a big fan of of not thinking about music in boxes, if if at all possible. You know, music is music. Let's make music that doesn't necessarily have a genre. Yeah. Um, let's make music together and let's take it to where people are instead of always or often expecting them to, to come to concert halls that can sometimes be expensive. Yeah, and full of rules that 
we're not necessarily aware of and can you can be made to feel a bit of an outsider. Definitely. I remember a conversation really well with um, somebody who runs one of the Age UK um, uh, organisations, part of their organisation. And I said, do you feel that you're residents, most of whom are living with dementia, can access concert hall spaces and performance spaces in Manchester. And she said no. And I said, what you know, what are some of the reasons for that? And she said, well, one of the very basic ones is that the toilets are too far away from the seating. You know, small things like that. Yeah. It just means that there are audiences that really can't access what we see as the core of performance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And what are your thoughts on sort of the funding that we get in music we need more is the bottom line i think it's quite sad to see where there are cuts being made in music education Mm -hmm. and it goes right through to, to primary school to secondary school and given the pressures that schools are under and the pressures that they're under to prioritize english and maths my sons are at primary school and every single morning of the week is english and maths um and it's it's very hard for them to mm. fit in music or any arts. My, my son's school does does very well, but it's not easy for schools, I don't think. And it's a shame because I think one of the things that is holding back the realisation that, that music needs to be funded in schools is people not being aware of the research that's emerging. Mm. We know from the research that's coming out that music is not just a nice to have you know, it's actually quite fundamental when you see how it can impact on people. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think those messages are getting out to the funders and to the people who make the decisions enough yet. Um, and, you know, if you, if you imagined a world without music, many people would find that horrific. Yeah. And yet you don't have that world unless you fund yeah. music education. Absolutely. And you say yet, again, we, we discussed the fact that Actually, music psychology is a relatively new area. Um, and do you think that we'll be able to get that message out there at some point soon? Yeah, absolutely. I'm an optimist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The funding situation is has lots of problems, but there's also lots of good things about it. We have the, the research councils, UK Research and Innovation, and we do get funding for our work. And we're able to do things that hopefully we can then show as evidence that music makes a difference to people. For example, one of the funding bids that I'm working on at the moment with a with a colleague, uh, Ellen Polyakoff, is to work with people living with Parkinson's and to work with them to see what different kinds of music might, might help them with their lives, whether it's to regulate their emotions or to move. And we know that music makes a difference to people living with Parkinson's or with dementia um, or people who are living with conditions that mean that music therapy helps them. So the more research we do, the more we can shout about it. Michelle, I came to that um, the concert you did um, for the Parkinson's. Oh, yes. Um, you're showing your research and you have people who have Parkinson's and talking about how, how much it helped them. It was so incredible. It was and, a lovely evening. Oh, and it was so moving. And and if ever somebody needed a moment to go, why is music so crucial and why yeah. should we be making sure it's funded at every stage to ensure work like this can happen? It was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think we are only just starting to tap into the potential of music to help people when they need it in various ways, whether they are they have mental illnesses, physical 
mental illnesses, whether they're living with lifelong conditions. And things like Parkinson's and dementia are only set to increase in terms of prevalence in the population. So if we can develop more knowledge about how we can support these people using these methods, that's to the benefit of everyone. So um, I ask all my guests, the final question is, um, what advice would you give to your younger self knowing what you know now? Oh, what a great question. I mean, I think there's some obvious ones, aren't there? Like, I tell myself not to worry. <laughs> I, I think when probably the main thing I would tell my younger self is there will be lots of different paths and lots of different opportunities. I think when you're at that age where you're a teenager, you're thinking about whether you want to go into higher education or not, what you might do with your career, I think there's still a lot of pressure to pick one thing and to and to establish yourself as 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 very good at it and to get a secure income and a pension and and to be that thing and i think that is not the case no. i would tell my younger self you can try loads of things you know keep those keep those important qualities you know be kind be someone people wants to work with be enthusiastic answer your emails <laughs> keep all those qualities that that make you somebody who can succeed in different things and try things out if someone had said to me you're going to try it being an accountant and then you're going to be a music academic. I would have said, well, why? Why not go straight to being a, a music academic when I was 17? Um, and I would never have known that actually trying things out is a really good way to go until you find your home. Michelle, I could talk to you for another couple of hours. I don't feel... We've... I'm having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, we've not really touched on your research. <laughs> we've not, you know, there's so much more we could talk about, but unfortunately, our time is up for today. Um, thank you so much for coming in. Um, I think um, it, it's been really inspiring to listen to how you have done things differently in terms of the path you found and, yeah. and the work you do now. I think it's it's quite unusual work that you do now, but so vital. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully it won't become unusual in the future as more people know about and hear about the things that are possible. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. I, I love my job and I feel utterly lucky to, to be in this profession. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Music Mavericks. A new episode will be landing on your podcast feed every week. So please listen, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It does help others find us. And don't forget to follow the pod on social media. On Insta, it's Music Maverick Pod. And on Twitter, Music Maverick P. See you again 